Have you ever looked into your family tree before? You ever looked into how far back it goes, who's in it? I would ask if anybody's ever lied about their family tree, but I don't think if you did that you would tell me right now. But uh, family trees are really, really interesting things because there are people in your family tree that will surprise you pleasantly and unpleasantly. You know, nobody ever likes to say, yeah, I looked into my family, family history and uh, my great-great-great-grandfather was a slave trader. Very interesting. Nobody ever really shares that. But you might find out that there's someone amazing in your history. Maybe royalty or something like that. You never know. But, but here's what I know. I know that there are people in your family tree that still impact who you are today. There are people who, if you discovered about their life, you would realize where certain behaviors in your life come from. You would realize, hey, there, there's something in my family tree that has caused me to wrestle with this or causes me to be good at this. You know, in the Bible, it talks about blessings and curses even passing through generations. And that's a spiritual reality. Somebody who has an addiction issue in one area may pick it up in the next generation. Sometimes those negative things go back through multiple generations. And we look at them and psychology would say, oh, it's just, it's learned behavior. But the Bible also says that there's the reality of blessings and curses passing through family generations. This is a real, real thing. And it's really easy for us to, to sometimes feel like we're fated to go in a certain direction. You know, my dad was this way, my dad's dad was this way, and his dad was this way, so I guess I'm going to be this way. It's easy to feel like our destiny is written in stone sometimes when you look at your ancestry. But today we're going to find out that when Jesus gets involved in your family tree, when he intersects your ancestry with you, amazing, amazing things are possible. Anything can be broken in the power of Jesus. He is the one who makes all things new. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Whatever's happened, whatever is happening today in your family, Jesus can make all things new. You know, we can't pick who our family is. We wish we could, but we can't pick who our family is. Have you ever thought about this, that Jesus actually chose his family tree? He chose it. He's sovereign over all of history. He wasn't looking across time going, oh no, David, you totally messed up my family tree. Oh man. He never did that. He got to choose who was in his family tree because he's sovereign over all of time could have chosen anyone he wanted. I mean, who, who would you choose? I think I would have chosen people that would have made for, for great dinner conversation. Um, I mean, it would have been amazing to have dinner and say, you know, oh, oh, yes. Did I ever tell you about uh, my great-grandpa? Yeah, his name was uh, Nicholas Tesla. Yeah, sort of a visionary Russian scientist slash inventor, the greatest inventor that ever lived. Just an interesting little story, you know. And Walk down my hallway and people would say, who is that? And I'd say, oh, it's just Uncle Elvis. He was hilarious, man. You know, if you could choose your family tree, none of us would choose like serial killers, right, to be in our family tree. We'd all choose people that would make us look really, really good. So who did Jesus choose? I think you'll find some of the answers very, very surprising. The first part of Jesus' family tree is found in the first book of the Bible, Genesis. And, and last week we talked about predictive prophecy in the Old Testament, prophecies that pointed to the coming Messiah, Jesus, that only he could fulfill as far back as a thousand years before he ever arrived and even before that. But in Genesis 5, you have an incredible predictive prophecy that comes to us in a really amazing way. And 
Names are a big deal in the Bible, a really big deal. Nobody is named by accident in the Bible, and and people's names sort of tend to prophesy their life path and destiny in Scripture and their their character. And so in Genesis 5, we have a lineage that goes through several names from Adam to Noah. And something very interesting pops out when you begin to look at the literal meanings of those names. Human history begins with Adam, and Adam simply means man. It simply means man. From Adam, you go to Seth, which means appointed. Seth means appointed. From Seth, you go to Enosh, which means mortal. And from Enosh, you go to Canaan, or Kenan, which means sorrow. Then you have Mahalalal, which is a great, fun name to say, which means the blessed God. And from him, you go to Jared, which means shall come down. From Jared, you go to Enoch which means teaching. And from Enoch, you go to Methuselah, the oldest man who's ever lived, which means his death shall bring. From Methuselah, you go to Lamech, which means the despairing. And from Lamech, you go to Noah, which means rest or comfort. Here's the amazing thing. This is what happens when you put them all together. We're going to look at this on the screen. Shows us something really, really incredible. This is what means when I put all the names together, straight up sequential order. Man was appointed with mortal sorrow. The blessed God shall come down, teaching that his death shall bring the despairing rest and comfort. Not missing one name in perfect order. And when you look at that, you can tell a couple of things. If the names were in any other order, wouldn't work. It simply wouldn't work. And if there were any more or any less, it wouldn't work. But that's how it's laid out. And we see this prophecy already in the first book of the Bible pointing to the coming Messiah. And that's just Jesus saying, just in case you forgot, I'm standing over all of history, and I'm choosing who's in my family tree. There's a total of of four Gospels in the Bible, and there's four for various reasons. They're not really redundant. They all serve different purposes. They're written to different audiences. And, And one of the reasons we have four Gospels is because in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy, it was required that for a matter to be established as truth, you had to have two or three witnesses to record it. So we have four Gospels, in part so we can fulfill the Old Testament requirement that a matter might be established by multiple witnesses. But only two of the Gospels contain genealogies. Matthew has a genealogy because it's written to the Jews, presenting Jesus as Israel's long-awaited Messiah and King. And a king must have the proper pedigree to claim the throne. Must have the proper pedigree to claim the throne. It's not like anybody can just show up and be like, uh, yeah, I found on this website that uh, I'm like royalty, so I'm here for my palace. It doesn't work that way. You had to reveal through archaeological evidence your family's ancestry that you were of royal blood. Mark is written for a Gentile audience, primarily the Romans, who are hyper-efficient. So so Mark is a fast-moving, fast-paced gospel written primarily for the Romans that presents Jesus as a servant. Nobody really cares about the genealogy of a servant. Never comes up in the interview process. Luke was written for the Gentiles as well and, and is a thoroughly researched work. Luke did the homework and it presents Jesus as the son of man with an emphasis on Jesus' humanity. It has a genealogy because it's helpful to know where a man has come from. And finally, John presents Jesus as the son of God, God in the flesh, 
good luck with that genealogy. So that's why there's no genealogy in John, because he's God. There's a couple of differences between the two genealogies in, in Luke and Matthew that are important. They both sort of start out in the same place and are identical up to the point of King David. So both Mary and Joseph, Mary's side and Joseph's side, are the same up to David, King David. Then after that, they sort of split up because Matthew traces the line through Solomon to Coniah or Jeconiah. So they sort of split there. And here's the thing about Jeconiah. This is just a little interesting bit of history. God cursed Jeconiah, and you can look up that story if you want in Jeremiah 22, which I always think is really bad when God himself curses you and it's like public knowledge, you know? Don't be friends with that guy. Why? God has cursed him. That'd be sort of a hard thing to get over. You know, if that's on your match.com profile, I don't know how many hits you're getting, you know? Pros, cons, he's cursed by God. So you have Jeconiah who's cursed by God. And as part of that curse, nobody in his bloodline could ever ascend to the throne. That's part of the curse, even though he was in the royal line. But here's what's interesting. Joseph is the father of Jesus legally. But there is none of Joseph's DNA in Jesus Christ. He's not in the same bloodline. Well, there probably is on a microscopic level because when you go all the way back, but he's not in the bloodline of Joseph. He breaks the curse because he's not a blood descendant of Joseph, but he is a legal descendant of Joseph. So he's entitled to the throne through Joseph's line, which has royalty because he skips over the curse because he's not a blood relative of Joseph's. And then on the other side, we actually trace things through Mary. And Mary's genealogy doesn't go through Solomon. It goes through Solomon's brother, Nathan, who was not cursed. And so here's what this means. It means that even if you were a person who held to the curse and said, no, 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 he can't take the throne because he's part of a curse, even if you didn't get that side of it, that he's God, so he skipped the curse, you could still trace his royal lineage through the mom, through Mary, all the way back to King David. So Jesus fulfills all the requirements on both sides of his genealogy of having royal blood. I'm not going to go through all the genealogies today because it would basically be an exercise in either me showing off my ability to say Old Testament names or making a fool of myself by saying Old Testament names. So you can go and learn all the Old Testament names you want by reading the genealogies. So here we, we have these two genealogies. There's so much to talk about, but we're just going to focus on a few things that I believe really, really matter in the context of what we're talking about today. So in Matthew, it starts out in verse 1, and it says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, that's important, and the son of Abraham. Son of David and the son of Abraham. The word Jesus is simply the word Yeshua in Hebrew which means the Lord is salvation. Jesus means the Lord is salvation. And Christ is the same as as Christos, which simply means anointed one. It's the exact same word in Hebrew as the word for Messiah. So he's the Lord is salvation, the anointed one. That's what Jesus Christ means. So Matthew begins when he says the son of David and the son of Abraham. He's saying Jesus is the rightful heir to the throne of Israel, both racially and royally. He's a son of Abraham. So he's a Hebrew of Hebrews, racially, and he's a son of David. He's got royal blood flowing through his veins. God made a promise to Abraham that that through his seed, the entire world would be blessed. 
And when you actually look in the New Testament, Paul specifies that it is seed, not seeds. It's not plural. Paul says that when God made that promise to Abraham that the whole world will be blessed through his seed, he's talking about one specific person, not all his ancestors. He's talking about one person. He's talking about Jesus Christ. Royally, he's the son of David, Jesus is, who's considered the greatest king at this point that Israel has ever had. And David once said to the prophet Nathan, he said, you know what, I want to build a house for God. I need to build something spectacular for God. He had the right heart, the right motivation. But that night the Lord spoke to the prophet Nathan and said, hey, David can't build me a temple. His hands have blood on them. He's a man of war. He's a warrior, not a man of peace. So so tell David he can't build, but tell David this as well. I'm going to build him a house one day. And God has this way of tempering our disappointments with even greater blessings all the time. I've heard it said so well that we should praise God as much for the closed doors as we do for the open ones. We love it when we get an answer yes, but sometimes the answer no is worth just as much. And sometimes there's even more blessing in the no because God is saying, I got something better for you and I don't want you to settle. And God did end up building David a house. The house that he was talking about was the Messiah, Jesus Christ. God built the house, Jesus, out of the line of David. The Jews knew the Messiah must be of the seed of Abraham and a son of David. And did you know that there's only one Jew, Jesus Christ, who could ever make that claim? Because in 70 AD, which we talked about last week, the temple in Jerusalem were just destroyed by the Romans, burned to the ground, and pretty much Every shred of Israel's ancestry documentation was burned in the fire of the temple. All the family trees were all burned. And the Genesis accounts, the accounts in Scripture we have of the lineage of Jesus Christ, is pretty much the only complete ancestry we have for any Jew going back before the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. So any person who came along today and claimed to be the Messiah would literally find it impossible to trace his ancestry all the way back to David and all the way back to Abraham. There's not the archaeological evidence for anybody to do that today. Very, very interesting. Interesting in the genealogy in Matthew that there are four women named in his genealogy. In verse 3, we have Tamar. In verse 5, we have Rahab and Ruth. And in verse 6, it says, David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Who's he talking about there? Wife of Uriah. Bathsheba. Bathsheba. Talk about a skeleton in the closet, right? That's a story right there. We're going to come back to that. Most of us would try and hide something like that in our family history. But here she is paraded in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And she's not the only scandal, and we're going to come back to that. For a woman in, the, in this genealogy would have been a mind blower to Jews that they were even mentioned because Jewish men prayed this prayer every day. God, I thank you that I was not born a Gentile, a dog, or a woman. Nice, right? That's a great sort of thing to overhear your husband praying in the morning. It really builds me up when I hear my husband praying and thanking God that he's not a woman. It was a tremendously male-oriented society where women's names were pretty much never included in genealogies. So what's the Lord doing? God, in this gospel to the Jews, is saying, right from the beginning, I'm probably not 
who you're expecting me to be. And the kingdom that I'm bringing probably doesn't look like the kingdom you're expecting. I just wanted to give you a little bit of a heads up. And Paul would later write that in Christ, there's neither male nor female for Jesus is the great liberator of woman. Because in Galatians 3.28, it says all are one in Christ Jesus. All are one. And he's not saying we're identical. He's saying we're equal in value, which was not the way it was viewed during biblical times. But Jesus comes along and he says, oh yeah, I value you equally. You're both reflections of me. You're both made in my image. Again, as we talked about in our marriage and relationship series, it's not the concept of equal, identical roles. It's equal value, equal importance, different roles, same value, same importance to God. And this would have been a mind blower to the Jews who were reading the gospel of Matthew at the time. But if you study history, even today, you're going to notice a trend. Anywhere in the world where Christianity is stifled and persecuted, inevitably, the rights of women suffer and women are mistreated. You can look around the world today. Go find all the places where it's illegal to be a Christian, where Christians are persecuted, and you're going to find in all of those countries women mistreated and really treated badly because Jesus is all about an equal reflection of his image in both men and women as well. So let's take a look at the story of Tamar. And Jesus is really being a little bit antagonistic towards some of the Jews who are reading Matthew, and he's trying to dig at some of their pride that shouldn't exist. So they're very proud of family responsibility in their culture, because in their culture, if anybody died, if you died and you had a wife, your brother would take her as her wife, and they viewed this as an honor thing. We would say, hmm, that's a little bit weird, but they viewed it as an honor thing to make sure that nobody in the family was left out. The kids were taken care of. They were very proud of the fact that we take care of our own. We understand family. We understand family responsibility. But with Tamar, you get this story that reads better than any soap opera in the world. I mean, this stuff is salacious. So we start out with Judah, who's one of the 12 sons of Jacob, and he has three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. The oldest son, Ur, marries Tamar. And scripture records that Ur did wickedly before the Lord. He lived wickedly. How wickedly? God killed him. He was smitten. And I love to use the word smitten. Smitten, smote, smited, all great words. He was smitten, killed by God. So the cultural practice as described in Deuteronomy 25 was that, was that he dies, so the wife goes to the next youngest brother and raises the offspring in the name of that brother. So, so even though Ur has died, his kids will always be known as Ur's kids, Ur's kids. That was the cultural practice. So when Ur dies, Onan is obligated to marry Tamar. But Onan refuses to impregnate her, refuses. Therefore, he basically says, I'm, I'm not going to raise somebody else's kids. Any kids that they had would have carried his brother's name as well. He says, I'm not going to have kids and let them have my brother's name. So what did God do about it? Well, he's in a smiting kind of mood, so he smote him as well. God smote him as well. It's two out of three if you're keeping track. Now Ur is dead, Onan's gone, and Judah says, I've I got, I got one son left. Do I, uh, do I give her to Tamar? I mean, her track record is pretty bad, pretty bad. 
So he's understandably concerned, and he says, so, j- just listen, Tamar, here, here's the deal. Wait until Shelah gets a little bit older, and then I'll give him to you. Then I'll give him to you. But the years go on. Shelah grows up, and Judah, the patriarch of the family, doesn't keep his promise to Tamar. So Tamar takes matters into her own hands. She dresses up as a lady of the night, goes out to the street, hangs out in the road that Judah travels all the time, the family patriarch. Judah, being the classy guy that he is, says, hello, this is something new. How about we do business? And he wants to make a deal with her, but, but he doesn't have his wallet with him. Super classy, you know. Oh, I'm a little loose of cash right now. So she says, well, well, give me your ring, your staff, and your bracelet, and that, that'll do for now. You know, just sort of like bring me the money lately and I'll, later, and I'll, I'll give you back your stuff. You can give me what you owe me later. So they do the deal, take care of business. He leaves her with his ring, his bracelet, and his staff. He has no idea, of course, who she is because she's, she's veiled like the whole time. A few months later, the news is out because it's a small town because everywhere is a small town during those days. The news is out. Tamar has played the harlot. News is all over town. She's pregnant, even worse. Judah hears about this and in his self-righteous rage says, you know, we need to burn this woman. This is what we need to do. We need to burn her. Epic movie scene. She answered him, do you know whose staff this is? Whose ring this is? Whose bracelet this is? Talk about like a shot in the gut, right, for Judah. That's like football in the groin just on repeat. You know, he's just standing there like, Oh, I did not see this coming. (laughs) His jaw must have dropped. And he realizes immediately that he is at fault for failing to take care of his family in a way that was traditionally and customarily proper. In holding back his son from Tamar, he's deprived her of his rightful seed. And here's here's what's interesting. God doesn't hold that against Tamar. Holds it against Judah. And says, none of this should have happened, Judah, if you had just done what I told you to do. None of this would have happened. This is on you. And God redeems Tamar's life, and she has even more kids. But that is a sordid story, to say the least. So Jesus chooses Tamar and says, let's just put the story in here, since you guys are so proud of how you take care of family. Let's put the story in here. Then you have Rahab, and and the Jews not only valued family responsibility, but they valued sexual purity. And guess who's number two in the genealogy? Prostitute named Rahab, second woman mentioned. You know the story that in in the days of Joshua, they're going into Jericho, they send some spies in, and through an interaction, she ends up hiding the spies because she believes that their God is the true God. She just knows, she gets it, she recognizes that whoever God is, he's with them. She hides the spies so they're not captured while they're scouting out the city. She helps them escape the city and in return, she is spared when the whole city is destroyed. And Jesus takes her, puts her in his family tree, not only in the Old Testament, but in Hebrews 11, the hall of faith, her name comes up again as an example of great faith. She didn't understand anything about God, but she recognized that he was real, he was with these people, and so she better start serving this God, and we'll figure out the rest later. And God honored that level of faith. 
So not, not only are the Jews concerned about family responsibility and moral purity, but thirdly, they're big on racial superiority. They, they were so determined to keep their racial genes and bloodlines free from pollution that they believe that as a Jew, if you even accidentally brushed against a Gentile, you'd have to go home immediately, take off your garments, burn them, take a bath, get dressed again, and go on your way. Little harsh, little harsh. But guess who's in the genealogy? We have Ruth, a Gentile. She's a Moabitess. We have Rahab as well, who is also a Gentile. Two Gentiles. Jesus is just messing with people's ideas of who he's going to be as the Messiah. And then we get to Bathsheba. Bathsheba, known as her who had been the wife of Uriah. And so to the Jews who were so proud of their, their history, especially their great King David, this reminder would have cut pretty deep would have cut pretty deep. If you don't know the story, David's an equal part of the failure as well. He's the majority of the failure, and his name's in there too. And the story goes back even before David is king. When David is on the run from King Saul, he's being hunted. He has a group of men who band around him, known as his mighty men. These are just like his boys. There's less than 40 of them. They're with him. They're faithful. They live with him in the wilderness. They've got no reason to be with him other than believing in him as a man and loving him as a man. And here's what most of us don't know. Uriah, the wife of Bathsheba, is listed among those mighty men. He's not just some guy. He was with David when he was in the wilderness. He was one of his boys. And if you don't know the story, David basically steals his wife while he's away at war fighting for David then arranges to have Uriah killed in battle to cover it up. God exposes the whole thing. It costs David his firstborn son from Bathsheba. David repents bitterly and deeply, and God forgives him. God forgives him. The next child Bathsheba has is Solomon. Solomon, wisest man who ever lived. So God redeemed even that situation But he puts them in there because what he's trying to say is he's trying to say, my bloodline is not about perfect people. My bloodline is about people I've redeemed, people that I've claimed and I've said, you're going to be mine. You're going to be mine. So that there would be nothing in his bloodline that people could point to and say, oh, his bloodline is full of the best people, the most perfect people, the most accomplished people. The only common thread they all have is that they were all redeemed by God. That's the common thread that runs through the family history of Jesus. He says, my kingdom is coming, but it's not going to be like you think it is. And I'm so thankful for the genealogy of Jesus because it reminds me of this. I have no reason to ever say, God can't use me. God can't use me. I've sinned too greatly. I've shirked my family responsibilities. I've, I've messed up my family. God is the one who makes all things new. All things new. And he included people like Rahab and Bathsheba and David. And today he includes people like you and me for the same reason that he included them. Not because we're perfect, but simply because he says, you're going to be mine. You're going to be mine. I'm going to redeem you. And so I'm so thankful for the genealogy of Jesus. Your your family might have had failures 30 years ago, 300 years ago, or three minutes ago. You might be in a place where you're sort of trying to get your morals just to to a decent place. You might feel like 
culturally you're not a Christian. You don't understand enough. You're not smart enough. You don't know enough about the faith. But in the genealogy of Jesus, there's an invitation. There's an invitation to join Tamar and Rahab and join Ruth. If you know the story of Ruth, all she does is she looks at Naomi, who's a believer, and she just says, you're a child of Israel. You're a child of God. Wherever you go, I'll go. Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. Where you die, I'm going to die there too. I'm just going to be with you. God says, that's all I'm looking for. I'm looking for people that say, I want in. I want to be a part of your family tree. I'll take care of the rest. You don't need to worry about any qualifications. The cross is the qualification. The cross is the qualification. And here's what I love about it. Where we would try to hide our greatest failures. Jesus looks at a Tamar, a Rahab, Bathsheba, a David. And he says, I want you to know your own people, your own family, your own friends might be ashamed of you. But one day I'm going to call your name in front of every person who's ever lived. And I'm going to call you mine in front of every person that's ever lived. Because I'm not ashamed of you. I'm not ashamed to have you as a part of my family. I'm not ashamed to know your name and have everybody know about it. That's what the family of tree of Jesus says to us today. It says we're welcome. It says we're welcome. The names go on for 15 more verses, tracing the genealogy of Jesus through Abraham and David and, and on down to Joseph. In verse 16 of, of Matthew, it says, And Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Notice that it doesn't say, Jacob begot Joseph, of whom was born Jesus. It says, Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, comma, of whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. So Jacob begot Joseph. Joseph married Mary, and Jesus came from Mary. It's the only place in the genealogy where it breaks up the pattern of blank begot, blank begot, blank. Because Jesus is not a direct descendant of Joseph's. He's not. This is a really interesting point. John 3.16, a verse hopefully most of us know. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. Most of your Bibles will leave out the word begotten. Begotten. But that word is enormous. It's enormous. Because begotten means comes directly from. Is of the essence of. And so Jesus is the only begotten son of the Father. But every single one of us who are men are sons of God. All the women are daughters of God. So it's a huge word because we're all sons of God, but we're not the son of God. We're not the begotten son of God. So Jesus was not begotten from Joseph, even though Joseph is his legal father. When Jesus comes onto the earth, we're going to see Jesus continues to follow this pattern, this pattern of finding broken people and redeeming them. He ends up with Matthew, the tax collector. He ends up with a woman caught in adultery. He keeps finding all these situations, Mary Magdalene. And we see this pattern continue again and again and again throughout the life of Jesus. That he is not looking for perfect people. He's looking for people who know they need a savior. That's why Jesus says, hey, the people who are well don't need a doctor. The sick need a doctor. And it's interesting that the greatest barrier, I think, for people coming to know Jesus is we're so slow to admit that we need help. We need a savior. We need a doctor. We're convinced that we're well when we're not. 
But Jesus comes looking for people who say, I, I need a savior. I need a savior. Jesus says, I'll put you in my family line. There's a really interesting article about victims of the Holocaust. Really interesting article. Including those who survived concentration camps like Auschwitz and Treblinka. And they found that, that 40% of the survivors who had adjusted well had gone on successfully in their lives. But 60% were still struggling. Struggling with the memory. Struggling to just get back to normal life. To make anything of their life. And when they found out what the common denominator of this was, it sort of turned the psychological world upside down. Because the 40% who had adjusted well when they slept did not dream about their past. They didn't dream about their past. And so un- until this study, the traditional sort of idea in psychology had been whatever tragedy you've been through, you need to relive it again and again and again. You need to talk about it again and again and again and again and again until you work through it. And I, I had a friend who still has PTSD. He's been dramatically healed by God. But for seven years, once a week, he talked about it. He talked about it. He talked about it. And it never got better. It never went away. It never went away. But here's what they found. They found that the 40% who had adjusted well had basically let it go. They had said, that's no longer a part of my life. That was then. This is now. It's a closed chapter. And I'm moving on. They didn't deny that it was real, that it had happened. They just made the choice that what had happened in their past was not going to define what happened in their future. It's not denial. It's just closing the book. While the 60% who never moved on thought about it constantly. Romans 8.1 says, There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And so if you're caught up living in the failures of yesterday or yesteryear, let them go because Jesus has forgiven you. He's forgiven you. In Revelation, Jesus appears saying, behold, I'm making all things new. And the truth is, if, there, if there's something in your past that you just can't let go of, I believe counseling can help, but ultimately it might not. You might just need a miracle of Jesus working in your life. You might just need the Holy Spirit to help you understand that there really is now no condemnation. There really is a clean start. There really is hope. There really is a new beginning. You, want, you might know that in your head, but you need the Holy Spirit to move it down to your heart, your soul, your spirit. So today as we worship, we have an incredible opportunity to just meditate on this idea that God is making all things new. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That thing that you just can't let go of in your past, that Satan just likes to pull up every now and then and just play through one more time to fill you with condemnation, with shame. Let the Lord take it away. You know what the Lord's word says. There's no condemnation. He's forgotten our sins that we've given to him. We just need help walking that out in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so today, let's just celebrate the fact that we have new beginnings. We have a new start. We have a hope in Jesus. Let's pray together. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much that your promise is a life free from condemnation. God, our, our hope isn't in becoming good enough to atone for what we've done. Our hope is in the fact that you have atoned for what we've done. Somebody has already paid for it. 
somebody has already made it right. And it's you. It's your blood on the cross making it right, paying the price for us.